platforms are the institutions of the 21st century. They're institutions that have a dual role of being the entities that sort of define the templates for how the economic activity will be conducted. But they're also increasingly starting to take on governmental roles in terms of thinking about social protections, you know, the social safety net. I think the platforms have really led the conversation. Workforce transformation, a future of work where individuals are owners of their own career. Companies buying work outcomes, not employees, on the open market. Welcome to State of Independence, the podcast about how independent work has completely transformed the U.S. economy and how you can take advantage of it. I'm your host, Asya Hawk. Vice President of Talent Marketing at MBO Partners. And today we'll talk with Arun Sundarajaran, the Harold Price Professor of Entrepreneurship and Professor of Technology Operations and Statistics at the NYU Stern School of Business. Arun is also the author of the book, The Sharing Economy, and will speak about how very predictive of the future his book has proven to be in the few years since its publication. Well, Arun, it's so wonderful to welcome you. We have known each other for many years, although much of that time has been sort of virtual because we're connected on so many different platforms, although we have met in person over the years as well around our common interest in and focus on independent work and around the sharing economy, which is a space that I think we're both very interested in and one that I would love to talk to you more about. So welcome and so pleased to have you here. I'm delighted to be joining us here. And yes, you're right. We've been chatting about the evolution of capitalism, of platform business models, the sharing economy from, I guess, those early idealistic days about 10 years ago, when it seemed like the sharing economy was a new way of imagining how the world's economic activity might be organized and distributed, right? I mean, I guess it's it's turned out that way, but not quite the way that we expected it to turn out. That's such a true point. And you've kind of raised a wonderful question that I often ask of others as as I begin these conversations, which is, you know, we are at the 10th anniversary for MBO studying the growth and significance of independent work in America. But, you know, where were you 10 years ago in your career, in your kind of thought process? And, and, And tell us a little bit about your work And as you do that, also a little bit about your background, because it's very illustrious and I don't want to misspeak, you know, for how you got to where you are today and what you do today. So take us back. Absolutely. So um, I I joined NYU more than 10 years ago. It was my first job and I still have it. My career trajectory has been sort of very different from the economy that I study. So 10 years ago, I was also very deeply involved um, at the time in India's effort to roll out a biometric-based digital identity platform. It was the country's first attempt at creating a national ID system. And the approach they took was to create identity only and digital. Most other countries, identity is tied to the provision of some service whether it's social security or driving a car or voting or 
you know, subsidized food. And this was an attempt to say, well, let's just sort of have a platform for identity and then tie it to a whole bunch of other things like food distribution, um, financial inclusion, and so on. And so when you ask me to think about 10 years ago, I mean, this, this was a really heady time because, you know, I had spent a lot of time studying the impacts of digital, which I have done through my career, but I hadn't really imagined digital impacting a country. And I hadn't really conceived platforms as being this mix of a digital layer, but analogous to institutional infrastructure in some sense, you know, sort of almost this government institution-like role that this Aadhaar platform, as it was called, thought about playing or like, you know, imagined itself playing. And it was sort of prophetic in many ways, or it foreshadowed what started to really consume my life in the years after which was a whole range of other digital efforts, um, none quite as moonshot as like identity for a billion people, but all which progressively revealed to me that, you know, the role of digital platforms in our world isn't going to be restricted to digitizing music or digitizing books or the digital realm, that there was going to be a very physical world component, that they were going to transform a number of physical world industries and that they were going to play a role in society that was akin to the role that governments have historically played. And, you know, if I look at the events of the last few months, I look at Airbnb making the unilateral decision not to let people stay in places in D.C. around the inauguration in the interest of promoting social order. I look at Twitter and Facebook, who were really looking to combat misinformation to, again, maintain social order. It underscores to me just how much that transition really has occurred away from the government institutions and towards these platforms. You know, I think a byproduct of the platformization of the world, I guess, and the emergence of the sharing economy has been the growing fraction of people who, you know, have a attractive alternative to taking a full-time job with a company, right? Because as we shift how we organize the world's economic activity away from the traditional 20th century company or organization and towards these fluid, you know, digital ensembles that allow millions of small business owners and independent workers to get access to opportunity that they, you know, otherwise wouldn't have had. It's not surprising that it's been an incredibly eventful 10 years for, um, you know, sort of the growth and evolution of independent work as well. My mind is sort of spinning as I'm thinking about, I didn't know that I've known you for a long time, but I didn't know that you worked on this effort 10 years ago. And the idea of um, a digital footprint that then becomes the way that you move around the world. And honestly, you talk about the borders of India, but this concept is also borderless, right? Because if you think about blockchain upon which, you know, Bitcoin is something that was built, but the block being the ultimate owner of an event or an interaction or an entity, human or otherwise, <laughs> a corporate entity as well, uh, could be formed and live on the block. Talk about your concept of the delivery of work that becomes now borderless, right? Because that to me is really fascinating, this idea that you could create a digital space in that space you could now offer services and do so in a in sort of a frictionless compliant fashion anywhere in the world have you studied this have you thought about this in the 
in the professional work that you do? Or what are conversations you've had around this topic? I think that, you know, the changes that we've seen unfold over the last couple of decades have certainly challenged a lot of the borders that existed around work and around opportunity in the, I guess, the late 19th and the 20th century as our current sort of form of capitalism became the dominant way in which we organize the world's economic activity, right? You know, how the economic activity is organized is very closely related to what do individuals do and what is the arrangement of work of the individual. 200 years ago, you know, we were a world of local economies in some sense, hyper-local and hyper-independent. You know, this is when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, and he describes that economy that we're all forced to study in our microeconomics class of the independent producer and the independent consumer, right? And and it was an accurate depiction of the economy that he wrote about, right? Because that's, that's what you were. You were, um, you know, you worked with iron, you offered lodging, you were sort of the, the concept for a majority of people of employment or a full-time long-term employment was not really sort of a well-formed concept. Then I think over the second half of the 19th century, as the railroads were built in many countries, including the United States, and then we had the telegraph, the telephone, um, then mass production and mass distribution. And I think there was a certain kind of expansion, breaking down of borders in some way there as well where um, the railroads and, you know, the scale of mass production and distribution took economies out of their local areas and made them more national, right? I mean, however, where you worked was still very much a function of who you could work for or what your economic opportunities were. So for the companies or for this large agglomerations of sort of capital and hundreds of thousands of workers, commerce became not borderless, but more border free. But for the individual, it was still very much constrained by geography. And I think what the wave that we're seeing now in the 21st century is very much a creation of borderless opportunity for the individual. Right. I mean, and this is along two dimensions. I mean, I'm no longer constrained by having to work within the borders of an organization. I mean, there is so much opportunity for the individual to strike out on their own and, you know, sort of seek opportunity as a small business, as an independent consultant, as an independent worker. But this individual can now also seek opportunity in places that are geographically distant, right? And so these twin sort of breaking down of borders for the individual actually was part of that thought. Um, and that idea was part of what really drew me into studying the sharing economy. I mean, the, the, the excitement associated with this, the individual could create capital, right? I mean, they could, you know, become their own business. And perhaps in my mind, at least like, you know, eight, nine years ago, as I thought about this, it seemed to me that this could reverse the trend of inequality that we've seen playing out over the second half of the 20th century. Because if you distribute the ownership of capital among like millions of individuals, you're naturally taking a stab at reversing sort of growing inequality, right? Because returns from capital grow faster than salaries. Um, it hasn't yet panned out that way. But, you know, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I maintain optimism. But I hadn't realized, at least in the context of the US until I read your report, just how many 
of these independent workers are seeing opportunities or you know finding commercial opportunities outside their borders right from what i remember it was like you know more than a quarter of them are you know getting business from elsewhere and i get the feeling that in many ways there are certain sectors of the economy that might actually see an acceleration of this kind of cross border trade because of covid i mean you 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 sort of had this initial knee jerk reaction that covid was going to make things hyper local again you know because um global supply chains were like severely disrupted and um perhaps for certain segments of the economy that is the case but you know i saw so much more commerce go online and go online for a very different set of segments of the market and so i think the number of small independent semi independent sellers who operate through platforms like you know taobao and amazon but who in many ways are conducting these cross border businesses by selling through a platform um i think business for them expanded dramatically and so i think the jury is out on like you know sort of just how much cross border e-commerce is um going to sort of grow or shrink because of covid but yeah i'm still sort of excited by the opportunities that are created but with the breaking down of these borders come many challenges because you know if you're secure within the confines of your neighborhood border and your organizational border you know there are certain forms of stability that come from that there is a certain familiarity with who you're interacting with there's a certain sense of community and there are government protections that sort of imagine that that is how you're going to be working and have been tailored to suit that and now all of that is up in the air what do you believe is a thoughtful way and a balanced way for us either as a business owner a ceo a, a you know a bureaucrat or is it just an independent professional an everyday worker contemplating this path what are the things that will create opportunity prosperity some form of stability and some form of growth which i think is something all of us want right we just have to figure out how we get there are there insights are there things you've been thinking about in your own work because i know um income inequality is a big theme of your recent work so i would love to hear your perspective on this you know i think that there are a number of challenges we have seen not just in the united states and not just because of the trump agenda you know a backlash against globalization start and you know it stems in part from countries not being smart about transitions transitions in you know how economic activity is organized transitions in where work is done transitions in what machines do and what humans do from the you know the end of the 1970s onwards we have seen in the economic data shrinking of manufacturing jobs in the united states this was foreseen 10 years in advance of it happening um you know in the 60s actually there was a presidential commission that looked into creating a universal basic income because they were worried that factory automation was going to sort of lead to mass technological unemployment you know that was like 50 years ago now what ended up happening was that the transition occurred but we didn't manage it well there are regions of the country where economic opportunity dried up there are regions of the country where economic opportunity grew very rapidly i mean the top 5 metro areas 
in the United States, I think, account for all of the growth, the net growth in innovation jobs over the last 15 years. If you take San Jose, San Francisco, San Diego, you know, Boston and uh, Seattle, you know, they, you know, account for a vast majority of growth in sort of the innovation industries. And you've seen sort of a shrinking of opportunity in a vast majority of the country. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is that we have already started sort of this twin transition of work fueled by technological progress again. Right? I mean, one is one 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 prong of that is the automation, the new wave of automation that is being caused by, you know, robotic and artificial intelligence technologies. And part of the robotic automation is just sort of a continuation of what began in the 80s. But we, we all anticipate that it's going to accelerate at some point. And the other is the shift in how the work is organized and what the role of the individual is. We will move away from an economy of predominantly full-time workers to an economy that is roughly split between people who earn all of their income from independent work and people who are salaried employees. So, you know, it's probably like 80, 20, sort of veering towards 70, 30, it's going to be 50, 50. Now, we have to manage this twin transition carefully. Otherwise, we're going to see continued growth and inequality. There is nothing fundamental about the technological progress that leads to an increase or a reduction in income or wealth or opportunity inequality. It's really about like, you know, what is the economic system within which it's happening? And what are the systems put in place to either level the distribution of spoils or to concentrate them? And unfortunately, in the United States at this point and in many other countries, I mean, starting with the neoliberal sort of um, path that we went down in the early 1980s and continuing like, you know, through the Reagan, the Bush, the Clinton, the Bush two, the Obama administrations. I mean, we've sort of been moving in one direction, which is away from allowing people who are naturally facing less economic opportunity from, you know, being able to achieve as much as people who are facing, like, you know, who are sort of endowed with, um, you know, a better geography or a better education and therefore able to sort of like, you know, take advantage of the progress. And we really need to level that playing field. So some concrete things that come to mind. One is, you know, to start thinking about, hopefully we'll dive even deeper into what should the new social safety net look like you know, as we continue the conversation. But one particular dimension of it, which has to do with education, is where I think the country's focus have to, has to shift dramatically. And I'm really hoping that this new administration has a very clear vision of where this focus should shift. And that is a shift away from focusing on early career education and towards focusing on mid-career education. A shift away from thinking about early career transition and towards mid-career transition. Because, you know, I mean, it, this is not that just the United States, right? I mean, any country in the world, when you ask them about their educational accomplishments, will always highlight 
the leading research universities or undergraduate education institutions. That's sort of where the prestige is. That's where the money has gone. China will talk about their Xinhua and Peking. India will talk about their IITs. You know, France talks about Ecole, Oxford, Cambridge in the UK, like the US has, you know, sort of dozens of world-class universities. Nobody talks about the community colleges that have been set up to transition workers. And these community colleges were set up in the 60s by JFK, anticipating that these transitions were coming. But we haven't really spent much time on, you know, we, we know really well, how do we prepare someone with a two-year or a four-year degree to enter the workforce? But if someone's 15, 20 years in, and their occupation has suddenly been changed, either because they have to become independent or because their occupation no longer employs people and they have to find a new occupation. You can't send people back to college for four years. You've got a mortgage, you've got a family. You can't send them back to college for two years either. And so coming up with a new set of institutions that facilitate this transition, I think is central to lowering economic inequality in the long run, because that's a critical part of managing the transition and allowing people to manage this transition with dignity. There's so many implications that are running through my mind about different conversations I've had on this topic. I think you're on to something very profound here, and it's certainly something that I have seen in the data and also seen in the conversations that I have on a daily basis with mid-career professionals that are looking to start a new career path, you know, going from traditional work to independent work, either because they have been made obsolete or because the format and nature and quantity of work is not working for them in their traditional arrangement. And they're trying to establish, and it truly is almost like a learning journey. And we see it every day at MBO because we serve this population, especially in terms of high-end talent. And what I'll, what I'll kind of echo and build on, and I think we should continue to brainstorm around this is the idea that we are not equipped as a society for helping an individual in a world where there's no longer a lifelong career. So we thought and we assumed policy-wise that getting people from not being educated to being educated was enough. And then, and then society would, would sort of take care of the rest because you had that concept of you know, growth and lifelong employment and a corporate ladder and all these things that we had come to expect from work. In fact, it's been a long time since that's been a given. Yet, and this bothers me a lot, we continue to educate young people at some of our best universities and our community colleges. I've had this conversation with those in the community college system that prepares them for the wrong future. So, you know, they're putting up their hand, they're eager, they get the A for effort, they do the work, and then they're frustrated and disappointed that that work opportunity that they thought they were going to get by doing things right and getting the right grades simply doesn't exist. And it's not going to exist because the data told us that. That's what I remember saying to somebody. We were, I was at a White House policy briefing the year the State of Independence came out for the first time, 10 years ago. And I asked the question of the policymakers in the room, what are you doing to prepare for a world in which one in two workers will be independent of an employer? And there was pin drop silence. And the two presenters just looked at each other like, what? You know, they're, they sort of, they, they almost didn't know what to do with it. Oh, what do you mean? And then they pulled me aside and they said, where are you getting this data from? 
And I said, well, we're studying this topic and you're not seeing this data because you're not measuring it. You don't have a system, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is invisible to them because you can't look at tax receipts. Therefore, you don't see something that is right under your nose, which was at that time, 10 years ago, the nascent growth of independent work. Now, since then, the topic has been well studied and the government has also tried to catch up and look at self-employment as a sort of leading indicator of the future. But systems for education have not yet caught up. And so this is part of you know, where I think education is sort of under threat from new forms of education, the digitization of education, uh, something like a Khan Academy that will make um, primary education something that is accessible to anyone without paying a cent, <laughs> right? And then um, online education platforms, which I'm sure you've studied, um, like a Coursera or a Teachable that allow you to put content out there. So content is accessible. Yeah. However, our... Um, our definition of success has not changed. So it's almost a shame. It's like the tools are all there, right? So if the students knew that their definition of success that they were sold when they entered high school or college, in fact, is not going to make them a happy and self-actualized individual. And if instead they were taught that you are going to be the owner of your own career, you are going to have to collect a portfolio of skills understand your best skills or your best opportunity for success. And you're going to have to somehow find somebody on this open market and in some way engage with them to deliver productive work. I think they'd go do it. They yeah. simply need to be told. So, so the problem is not that the tools don't exist. I think the problem is we're setting people up for the wrong definition of success. No, I, I agree completely. I think that there's... Um... Early career education systems are slow to change. For a small fraction of the population, of the student population, of which, um, you know, lots, lots of NYU students happen to belong to that, they just have access to a different set of opportunities. And, you know, this is true of the top handful of universities in the country. But I think even, even at um, our university, there's a lot more thinking in the business school about how do we educate every business student to be an entrepreneur? Not necessarily a Sergey Brin, Mark Zuckerberg, I don't know, Elon Musk type entrepreneur where you're going to start the next multi-billion dollar company, although I'm sure we wouldn't mind if, you know, a few of those came out of NYU. But it's really thinking like an entrepreneur and how to create your own career trajectory. You know, I mean, because most people expect that they will plug into something and someone would have created a template of analyst, associate, vice president, or like, you know, manager and, you know, just sort of climb the ladder. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, organizations like yours that help people sort of navigate this, you know, new world of, you know, empowered, you know, self-determination in some sense, um, which sounds wonderful, but also means that you don't have like scaffolding around you, like, you know, to hold you up. But I, I wanted to pick up on a couple of other threads. I mean, one is the, you know, the digitization of content, of educational content. And, you know, I've always been very excited by the opportunities this creates, but I have always seen that particular slice as being primarily an expansion opportunity, meaning that, you know, millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people who didn't have access 
now have some access. Because when you sort of unpack what the product of a university is at the early stage, you'll realize that that's just one slice of it, right? I mean, the content, you know, whether it's delivered online or delivered in person is clearly an important component. When I joined NYU, you know, I thought that's what the students are giving the big bucks for. It's for the knowledge that I'm imparting them. And then, you know, once I joined, I realized that there's this sort of complex and nuanced product that we've created that has to do with, you know, sort of ways in which we facilitate opportunity. You know, people build a network, they get credentialed, you know, they, they get access to job opportunities. There's, you know, sort of those access things. There, there are ways of thinking, you know, sort of learning how to learn, you know, like this, this happens over time. There's a rite of passage, a coming of age sort of thing that every culture has had right in the past. And this has all sort of been wrapped into this thing that we call the two-year degree or the four-year degree. And, and, and the reason why I bring that up isn't to, you know, you know I'm un, un, unlike many of my peers, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't feel like online platforms will threaten the good universities anytime soon because they're just, you know, they're not offering a similar product. But I, I, I guess the other point that I'm sort of coming back to is that we have to think about what this bundle is for mid-career transition, right? I mean, we can't just send a person who used to be, you know, a factory worker, who used to be a, you know, a checkout counter, um, you know, work at a checkout, like a retail checkout counter. We can't just sort of send them online, say, okay, here's sort of a six-month data science course, tool up, and then sort of like, you know, wipe our hands off and say, okay, good, our work is done. Because there are all these other pieces that are missing, right? And in some ways, it's even more complex for mid-career education, because the person is not naturally in transition. You know, the advantage of early career education is that you're going through transition. So, you know, you go to where the work is, you um, you know, you're, you're mobile, you're sort of unencumbered largely by responsibility, although there are student loans and so on, which maybe we can come back to at some point. But, you know, it's very different from, you know, being in your mid-30s and potentially having a family, having roots in a community and realizing that the places where jobs are being automated are sort of almost completely distinct from the places where jobs are being created. But you need some incentives or you need some help, you know, sort of making that transition. And so, so I think we're unfortunately at a very early stage in creating this new bundle of mid-career education. You know, there are some good templates, you know, Amazon has its template, which is sort of vertically integrated. They find the jobs and work backwards. Walmart has its template of like, you know, college on a dollar a day and you know, sort of curricular, like, you know, part of the degree comes from working at Walmart. And so they've got an experiential component to it. But I think as the country that, you know, far and away leads the world in higher education, you know, there are lots of debates about who's the world leader on topic A, B, C, D, E, industry X and Y. But I think there's no dispute that the United States leads the world at higher education, right? I mean, you know, everybody has their bright shining star top university. But, you know, in the United States, the number 50 university in the country is still a world-class university and no other country has that depth, right? So I feel like, you know, the challenge for us is to say, well, how do we take this brain pool? How do we take this institutional infrastructure? And how do we repurpose some of it to serve a very different market? 
And I remember a conversation I had a few years ago with uh, Cheryl Hyman, who at that time was running the city colleges of Chicago. And and they, you know, they were really an exemplar and probably still are, um, you know, in terms of thinking about what are the market needs. And, you know, they, they, they thought like a company, you know, they were like, you know, let's read the signals of demand and let's retool our products on a one-year cycle to meet evolving market needs. I mean, most universities maybe think on five or 10-year cycles, right? So, you know, what what can the traditional university do? Well, you know, maybe, you know, the, the, the business model for educating, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in these small, low-cost, mid-career transitions probably doesn't work for the top-tier universities, but maybe there's a franchising model. Maybe there's a different sort of institutional infrastructure. Maybe we can pool together like, you know, small slices of the endowments of like, you know, the top 100 universities and, you know, create a fund that creates this new set of universities. Maybe the Biden administration can take inspiration from the land grants of the 19th century that created all these agricultural institutions that became the University of Michigan and Cornell and MIT and, you know, others. And I mean, it wouldn't be grants of land now. I mean, it would be a grant of something else, but government incentives. But to me, that's the, that's really where there's the biggest bang for federal spending. You know, I'm uh, sympathetic to people who have college loans and, you know, so are excited by the idea of forgiving the college loans. But, you know, I'm sympathetic to like, you know, a number of people who I know who support the idea of a basic income, you know, a new federally funded program that gives people sort of this income floor. But to me, part of the purpose of a federal government isn't just to sort of redistribute the cash it is to create institutions that amplify it, right? I mean, to create the institutions that the market can't create on its own, right? And mid-career education institutions have not been created by the market, will not be created by the market, and, and they're central. They're central to what the social fabric of our country is going to look like. The failure to do this in the 80s and 90s is central to why there's a rural-urban divide, why there's a red-blue divide today. You know, the filter bubbles of social media platforms are just amplifying this, but they're not causing it. The underlying cause is this divergence in economic opportunity across different geographies that was caused by a failure to manage the transition. Very, very profound and very true. The piece I want to touch on next is and it's an area that you really have expertise in, which is, which is why I wanted to dig into it, which is the rise of the platform business, right? This is a privately funded, very much a non-governmental phenomenon, but probably the one part of our economy where we have seen sea change in bringing income opportunity to people that have been displaced by traditional employment. So let's talk about the Uber driver, the Etsy seller, the Airbnb host, right? The um, person that's on Upwork, which we used to be Elance. There's a set of tools, processes, there's a set of operating principles that allow income and opportunity to immediately be derived if you figure out how to do certain things that are the rules of the platform, you know, about how you operate, how you get set up, which tools you use. And they're masterful at doing that. That is why we've created this massive 
peer-to-peer online marketplace model that sits alongside the governmental model. Talk a little bit about, you've done a lot of work in this space. I think you're you're in fact somebody who has built relationships that are very authentic inside the sector. Tell us what what your perspective is here and where you think this portion of the workforce is going to help take us and how it fits into the income opportunity conversation. Absolutely. I mean, you know, platforms like this to me are the institutions of the 21st century. They're institutions that have a dual role. One role is the role that corporations had in the 20th century of being the large entities that sort of define the templates for how the economic activity will be conducted. You know, Airbnb is slowly becoming the standard for how short-term accommodation will be delivered, right? I mean, you know, um, post-COVID, Airbnb will be significantly larger than Marriott Starwood by any metric, and they're on a very different growth trajectory. And so, you know, this will be the dominant model of organizing short-term accommodation. And you'll see similar profound changes in sort of transportation and professional services, probably some slices of healthcare over time. We've already seen it in retail, where the coexistence of the giant online retailer and the millions of small retailers, you know, sort of replacing the mid-size to large retailers. So, so they're certainly sort of creating those templates and defining in many ways what will be done centrally and what will be done by the individual. And so through that, they will also define to some extent who holds the capital and, you know, sort of how empowered really are the individuals. I, I think it's very reasonable to say that Airbnb is facilitating the creation of millions of micro entrepreneurs who are genuinely running tiny businesses through the platform, right? They're building brand, they're making pricing decisions, they're making inventory decisions, they're making capital investments. It's, it's a different kind of business from bed and breakfast, but, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the creation of decentralized capital. But they're also increasingly starting to take on governmental roles, which is where our conversation started. And in, in, in terms of thinking about social protections, you know, the social safety net, I think the platforms have really led the conversation. I'm not saying that the platforms started out by saying we need to do right by the people who provide through us. They were sort of catalyzed into leading the conversation by, you know, for the last five or six years by like, you know, the stakeholders who said, well, we've got to make everybody full-time employees so that they fit into like, you know, the social protection infrastructure we've already created. But they've really picked up the gauntlet now, and they are the ones who are sort of creating templates for what the funding of the future social safety net might look like. You know, a lot of people look at Proposition 22, which was the ballot initiative in California that insulates Uber and Lyft drivers and DoorDash delivery people and Instacart employees from being categorized, like, you know, by the previous legislation as full-time employees and remaining sort of independent contractors. But, you know, the part that people aren't focused on is that it creates a new template for funding benefits. It's not the most sort of munificent, you know, benefits funding effort that has existed, but it's a template and it's a new template. It's a middle, it's a middle ground that is an important first step. It's something that should have come from the legislature. It didn't come from the legislature, and so we had to resort to direct democracy. But I think other state governments and maybe the federal government should look at this as a template, study how it evolves, and use it 
I'm hoping that the Biden administration does not fall into the trap of saying that the solution is to make everybody an employee, because it's it's an easy one and it sounds good. And, uh, you know, people kind of nod, but it's it's really a step backwards. You're not looking to the future. What we have to be doing is two things. We have to be understanding how are the safety net needs of the workforce going to change as the workforce has to transition and becomes more independent. And the second is how do we, you know, given these needs, how do we fulfill them? You know, in the 1930s, we had the shock to the system with the Great Depression and, you know, we had the New Deal come out of that. Um, we're not going to have a massive shock to the system like that, that sort of spurs the government into action. And, you know, whoever's in FDR's place isn't going to have that kind of impetus of bread lines and 25% unemployment. That's that's not going to happen. So we're going to have to find some other way of doing it. But, you know, if you think about what the changing needs are, I mean, there are some needs that are always going to be there. We've needed health insurance 20 years ago. We're still going to need health insurance. Now it's a question of deciding you know, how it's going to be funded. But I think the rise of independent work certainly creates a bunch of new needs. And the rise of the platform economy creates a bunch of other new needs for the individual. So let me highlight a couple of what those new needs are. You know, you, you know as well as I do that income streams for independent workers are not predictable. We're moving away from, in some ways, the company providing you income insurance by saying, you know, maybe tomorrow you do less work than you did today, but I'm going to pay you the same amount. And so month to month or week to week, income volatility is higher for independent workers. Large income shocks are going to become more common because of more frequent transition. And, you know, I've looked at data on independent workers versus full-time employees to try and understand whether this intuition that, like, you know, they face greater volatility actually bears out in, you know, the data. And it's, it's very stark, you know, I mean, an independent worker, someone who has been an independent worker at some point, you know, over, I looked at a 12-year period, 2003 to 2015, you know, has a much greater likelihood of facing a 20% income shock, a 30% income shock, a 40% income shock, a 50%. You look at each magnitude of income shock, independent workers are much more likely to face it than a, a full-time employee. I think what the platform economy brings in on a different level is a redistribution of who bears business risk. And I think we've seen that amplified during the pandemic. You know, I mean, you compare Uber to Hertz. Both Uber and Hertz got hit very hard in the second quarter of 2020 as travel slowed down and movement slowed down. Uber took a 75, 80% hit on their ride hail revenue. Hertz took a huge hit on their car rental revenue. Hertz declared bankruptcy because Hertz is sitting with all of the business risk. And they have leases on, you know, hundreds of thousands of vehicles that are sitting in lots. Uber, on the other hand, bears some of the business risk, but the Uber drivers bear the rest of the business risk. And these are individuals. You know, an Airbnb host holds a little more risk than a employee of a hotel. And so as we create this economy in which we're dividing up the capital, but also dividing up the risk, but we don't have 
protection systems in place or recovery systems in place for an individual who has faced this kind of economic shock. You know, like an Uber driver can't declare bankruptcy the way Hertz did and take advantage of bankruptcy. It's not set up that individual. We've got unemployment insurance, but look at how it's labeled, right? It's labeled unemployment. You know, it sort of assumes that you had a job and you don't have a job. So I think these are two dimensions, income volatility and a redistribution of business risk that a new social safety net has to address. And it's going to have to be a partnership between the individual, the platforms and the government. I have been thinking about this topic and you've provided a lot of insight into sort of my own personal reflection on this kind of as a, looking at it as a futurist. So I think the powerful concept here, and it kind of links back to all the way to the beginning of our conversation where you talked about your work in India and, and the concept of a digital identity. We're seeing at MBO, and we're following very closely the growth in EINs. So there's a rapid and, and, and quarter over quarter growth in new, new independent businesses being formed, typically solo businesses of one. And this is a topic we're going to continue to talk about. That concept that somebody who wants protection from income variation, the kinds of protections that a large corporation has, like bankruptcy protection, I think the heart of it lies in their signal to behave as a business rather than informal income opportunity that they might get in a peer-to-peer world. That's the first, initially peer-to-peer was very informal, right? It wasn't really being looked at. It was just a nascent development using a Facebook or an Instagram, finding ways to make money from each other. But as individuals become serious about seeing themselves as a business, it's a business of one, but it's still a business. The entity is their greatest form of protection because it's it's something that a government structure can recognize, understand, and legislate and build laws, both to promote growth and also to create support. So what I hear from you is, is I think a very profound concept. As the world becomes more unequal, and we know that, that is true, right? Piketty economics or whatever, we know income inequality is real. We have to think about the protections that today we provided to very, very large companies in order for them to stay stable through different kinds of economic shocks. How do we provide those in a thoughtful and manageable way to very small businesses that might become the other half half of our barbell economy? You know, Steve King and I had a really great conversation about this on the podcast at the very first episode of State of Independence. We talked about the idea of the barbell economy and how that was a prediction from a very long time ago. We had a more balanced economy. We had you know, some large employers, many middle employers, and then some small employers or small sized entities. Today, we're thinking of a world where there's going to be a fewer but very, very economically significant large employers. They're going to control a big part of work output and work direction and control. And then many, many very small entities, either employee or incorporated, that provide the services, right? So what we haven't done is turned every individual into a company. But I almost see that that is maybe what we need to do. Like if you if you are born and you're given a digital identity, should you also be given a digital corporation? And is that the only way that you're going to become, you know, who you need to be and get the right protections at the right stage of your life? I and mean, what do you think? It's a fascinating thought. I've certainly heard a lot of interest in a 
proposal that, you know, when someone is born, they're given a little slice of capital, like a little share of ownership of the economy of the country that they're born in as sort of an alternative to a universal income. Maybe there's a little slice of, you know, the returns from your country that you're, you know, you're endowed with at birth. But yeah, maybe you should also incorporate you know, I'm certainly going to spend a lot of my time over the next five years thinking about, you know, the new safety net and, you know, managing the transition. And um, I mean, there's there's a tremendous amount of insight that really interesting data that comes out of your report and sort of the brain trust that MBO has. I think this is the moment in which we should think very carefully about, you know, what elements of this should be showcased in a way that they can really impact the shaping of new policy. Like, you know, the creation of new programs, because it's not as if we've been hit with a huge wave of displaced workers displaced by automation or a huge wave of independent workers suddenly now. I know a lot of independent workers where their benefit solution is um, make sure that your spouse has a full time job. This sort of seems to be the like, you know, the primary mechanism by which independent workers get benefits and, you know. Um, it's 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 sort of it, it clearly is something that we, we we need to evolve right and and so the crisis hasn't hit us full on yet but if we wait for it to hit I mean this is the kind of change that will take many years to sort of roll out to experiment with and um, you know I think this is the last possible point at which we need to start the process of creating this new social safety net because um, you know it's it's, it's central to you know, what our country is going to look like in 10, 15 years. Well, I think that your call to action is one that I hope that policymakers listen to and and sort of unpack. I know that this is a conversation that doesn't end here. So thank you so much for such a fascinating, um, thoughtful, and, and really intellectually broad uh, discussion on the future of work. I know our listeners are going to love love hearing from your perspective. All right. Well, thank you, Asya. Thank you for the um, invitation and thank you to you and your other partners for the research that you generate and for like, you know, the insight that you provide in, into this space. It's certainly sort of like you're certainly a, a bank of knowledge and a brain trust that I lean on a lot in sort of evolving my understanding of independent work. Thank you so much. That was Arun Sundarajaran, author, future Birch expert, and professor at NYU Stern School of Business. For more of MBO's insights on the future of work and how to make the most of the independent economy today, visit mbopartners.com or find another episode of State of Independence wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.